You're listening to Driving Law, a podcast by Kyla Lee about all things related to the rules of the road. Welcome to another episode of Driving Law. I am Kyla Lee at Acumen Law, and with me, my co-host, Paul Doroshenko. Hey, Merry Christmas, Kyla. Merry Christmas. It's not Christmas yet, Paul. We still have- It's very close. We do have one more podcast before Christmas, but, you know, getting into the Christmas season here, I think we're probably converting our website over, as we often do. (laughs) Christmas theme. Yes, so visit VancouverCriminalLaw.com for uh, a, a fun Christmas surprise. If it's been done, has it been? Has it happened yet? Do you know? Uh, it. I don't know. But well, if it hasn't happened yet, check back every day because it will happen. Yep. All right. We have so much to talk about. Like I thought, you know, the Christmas season, this type of year, it's a quiet time of year. What could possibly be big in driving law? We're going to have a few short episodes. Nope. We have a ton of stuff to talk about today. Oh, oh my goodness. So I thought, so start, I thought we'd start on talking about uh, the very made in BC problem that we seem to have. And we've talked about a couple times on the podcast of commercial trucks hitting overpasses. Yay. The funny thing about our podcast, I was just thinking about it as I was driving in today. It started off being basically for us to share the discussions that you and I normally have in the office. Um but it's like now we're discussing so much more. Uh, and this is uh, just such a surprising thing that we that this is an issue at this point in time, given all the potential technological fixes and training for driving and everything. So outline for me what they're changing. Uh, so, so, yeah, basically um, they're taking uh, uh, what the government says, tough action to prevent these new crashes. Tougher regulations, bigger fines, and robust enforcement, new technical requirements, including warning devices, which is a good there, idea. Yeah, that's something we talked about. Uh, and um, speed limiter technology, which I don't understand why speed limiter technology is a uh, going to prevent trucks that are over height from hitting things that are above them, but sure. Yeah, no. So this is the overreach that we see in legislation all the time. They say that they're doing one thing and then they, they add in the other things that are somebody's somebody's little in government's dream, um, something they've dreamed of, of putting into the law. Somebody at the superintendent of motor vehicles or somebody at, you know, some police officer, you know, while you're doing this, put in speed limiter provisions that allow us to put speed limiters in trucks. Yeah. And okay. They already passed the legislation that requires speed limiters in commercial vehicles earlier this year so So are they just taking credit for it later again to try and make it yeah yeah they're basically re-announcing something they've already done i mean they had to enact regulations to bring it into force and effect but like they're basically just re-announcing something they've already done and have failed to implement and then trying to pass it off as this political win because it's a hot button issue uh, well, I don't know. I guess we'll have to see the legislation because they might have realized that they missed something or they might be expanding it to, to different trucks. I mean, they haven't. Yeah. Is the legislation, have you read the legislation yet or are we just going on the news story? Oh, no, they haven't. They haven't tabled any legislation yet because yeah. this changes to regulations. 
Oh, okay. It's all in yeah. regulations. With- yeah. So they're taking existing legislation and they're basically just changing the penalties and implementing things that they've already passed by regulation. So well, there's a sense that there's a problem. And so they feel that they have to step up and offer a solution. The oh. interesting thing is, I mean, you know, there is a problem, right? Each time it happens, you, you have to say to yourself, once it's happened numerous times, that it's a problem. Um, the question is, is it like something that requires new legislation or just requires enforcement of existing legislation? And if the government just says, we're going to actually enforce the law, that's not going to, you know, appease anybody, I guess, who's upset about it. Um, anyway, go ahead. Sorry. So here are the actual changes, um, which they are making. They're using their regulatory power to quadruple, um, the fines if you are, uh, if you are sort of violating, um, uh, the overheight laws and the load restrictions. So they're just making a bigger financial penalty. I don't think that's going to make a big big difference because people are already smashing their trucks into overpasses and then fleeing the scene because they're concerned about the penalties. Then they say... That's true. There's that last case. Yeah, the guy left the scene yeah. concerned about, but he might have also been drinking or he may have been in, you know, not the condition to operate his vehicle, which would make a lot of sense given the collision that took place there. Right. Well, it's not addressing the behavior, though, that's caused the most problems recently. And they also no. say... They're, they can ground an entire fleet if companies are involved in repeat crashes. Well, guess what? They already have the power to do that. Well, yeah, they already actually did ground that fleet for a day or so because they weren't participating in the investigation, which tells me they have that power as it is. And then there's the uh, cancellation of carrier safety certificates. Again, something that can already be done by issuing tickets that attract NSC consequences or by having CBSC do an audit and then determine at the end of the audit that the carrier safety certificate should be canceled. Like these these powers already exist. Yeah, they do already exist. So, I mean, what is the what's going on here? Is it just a, a meaningless declaration to try and placate a public that don't seem to be up in arms about it? I mean, the point is, like, I don't see, I don't see the hue and cry for this change. But, you know, when it happens, we're all shocked. We know it's a one individual. It's the driver who screwed up. Um, you know, the, there's a failing for that driver. Maybe every other driver out there is great. Maybe this driver was just like found out his his spouse was leaving him or something. <laughs> like, you know, you, you know, it, it just seems to me like it's a overreaction to something that. You know, it's a it's a interesting story on the radio, but is it really something that needs to be? The the only thing that's really new is that for trucks with like like dump truck components, mm-hmm. raising components, yeah, a warning signal to let them know if it's gone off, like if it's accidentally been, yeah, accidentally gone up. Yeah, that's I'm always it. amazed. You think that they you hear it in the hydraulics, you'd feel it in the truck, you'd feel it in the way that the truck drives because of the unbalanced nature of having, you know, half your box way up in the air. Um, if, if they don't notice that one would think that, uh, it's a big red flashing light on their dash, but that seems to me like a, a retrofit that every truck should have. The question is, when do they have to have it done by, I guess? Uh, April. 
Oh, that's quick. Okay, well, you know, you can get it done. Get your truck into the shop. Pick the boxes up. A red flashing light on your dash. Yeah, I'm sure it's a real easy install. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so um, it, it's it's political posturing. It's not meaningful changes. It's not going to change behavior of drivers. It's not going to change um, the problem. And I, I expect we will not see any any substantial differences to the number of crashes involving uh, overheat vehicles and overpasses. Well, even without the changes, we could probably go three, four years without it happening, right? It's just a uh, an odd circumstance that we've had a number in a row. Yeah. To okay. my mind. All right. Next, we have this issue that we've also been tracking for years now uh, with Jazz Kirat Sidhu, who listeners may remember is the driver involved in the Humboldt uh, Broncos bus crash, who pled guilty to dangerous driving causing death times several counts and was sentenced to eight years in jail because of the length of his jail sentence. He was um, subject to deportation, but he had a right of appeal um, because he's a permanent resident, exercised his right of appeal and was denied and is being deported. Um, the uh, Are you surprised? Uh, a little bit because... And here's why. I'm a little bit surprised because he is not the type of person like when when the federal government created changes to the immigration laws in Canada that would sort of deport people who were given long jail sentences. What they were thinking of were people who posed an actual threat to the safety of people in this country, an actual threat to the public. You get a long jail sentence in Canada. Usually, for the most part, it means you deliberately went and did something very bad, whether it's, you know, sexual offenses involving children or, or you know, child pornography, whether it's drug trafficking, whether it's crimes of violence. But in this case, you have somebody who did literally everything that you could reasonably expect a person to do to demonstrate genuine remorse. And that, you know, all the people who complain about defending drug drivers and whatnot, um, uh, would say would say you should do you should take responsibility and plead guilty and and serve your sentence. He wasn't even drunk. He was just driving distracted, basically that amounted to dangerous driving. And the the consequence to him for that is that he doesn't get to remain in Canada, which is it just to me is so foundationally inconsistent with the point of having those provisions. He seems like a reasonable guy. Right. And he seems like he would be a good Canadian uh, and uh, a good contributor to society. And it was basically a moment of inattention or failure to see something, uh, which I have to tell you happens all the time on those level crossings, those level road, you know, where the highway meets the side road in Saskatchewan. Mm -hmm. um, it just happens that it was, he was driving a truck and he struck a bus. Yeah. Um, and, um, you know, horrible for everybody. And we recognize that as you and I have discussed many times it, it to me, it, it didn't amount to a criminal, uh, offense looking at the, at the conduct, um, which makes it that much more offensive to me that he is being deported, but this is not, 
something that surprises me at all because we've seen this before. You know, there was a case about 18 years ago about with uh, um, two fellows street racing in Vancouver and somebody died and that individual was, you know, convicted and sentenced. I think he was convicted at a trial. It wasn't a guilty plea. Um, and uh, at the end of that, he was he was deported to, back to India. Um, yeah, it was a person on a, it was a permanent resident. I don't like it. I don't think this is appropriate or fair. I think, you know, if you murder somebody, that's one thing. It, you know, if you, if you are, a, somebody who commits a brutal sex assault, ship them back. You know, we don't need you in Canada. But a fellow who is driving and makes a mistake while driving and then pleads guilty to the harshest Thing that you could possibly imagine, giving up all his defenses, doing it largely, as far as I could tell, due to his remorse mm-hmm. and recognition of the pain that it has caused those families and the community. To me, this is not Canadian. To me, this is, this is n- not recognizing that every one of us is, you know, has our flaws. Every one of us, we all personally know our own flaws. Uh, our family members would probably tell us about many more um, people who we, with whom we work. But in any event, the uh, it just, to me, seems fundamentally unfair. Now, having said that, being deported to India 20 years ago was different than being deported to India. Now, we're seeing people who moved here from India who are moving back. Um, because they've got a, a foot in both nations and India's uh, economic situation, industrialization in India has been tremendous and fast. Um, it's just like we, you know, we had a huge portion of a of, uh, uh, large group of Chinese immigrants coming and, and many of the young people are not staying in Canada because they, you know, can find great business opportunities for themselves in China, having a foot in, in, uh, in both countries. So it's not like, being deported to India is not being deported to uh, to uh, Haiti. You know, it's it's being going back to India, not the end of the world, but still strikes me as fundamentally unfair. Yes, I don't like it. I'm not happy with it. I think that the government should take a hard look. This case should cause the government to take a hard look at the immigration um, laws and and it. Civility provisions and fix it. Well, it'd be nice if they fixed it for this guy. I mean, I, I suspect that a lot of the people, families, would not be supportive of this. And I seem to recall that somewhere along the line there was a mention of this that people didn't want the guy to be deported. He took responsibility, acknowledged it, and 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 was very clearly remorseful and and sorry. And it was just a simple mistake that, unfortunately happens on Saskatchewan highways mm-hmm. and they put up stop signs and they put stop, stop, stop. And then they put rumble strips and they put everything and yet it still happens. So, yeah. um, I don't, uh, I don't, I don't know what the, uh, the answer is, but that certainly does not seem right after the guy served his sentence to then report him. Yep. Person who did everything right after the fact. All right, let's move on to the next one. Let's move on to the next one, which is red light cameras in BC. So you and I have talked before about the Vershinin case, the the case with the individual who argued successfully 
that his red light camera ticket should be thrown out on the basis of the fact that he um the pictures of his license plate didn't show that it was a BC plate. The the decal and the lettering was so obscured that it wasn't clear that it, the plate actually belonged to British Columbia. He argued could be a plate from any jurisdiction, so therefore I should be acquitted. And the court agreed. And ever reasonable ever's... doubt. It's a reasonable yeah. doubt. Yeah. It's it's a basic principle in law, but ever since then. The traffic uh, enforcement officers in uh, red light camera cases have refused, refused to give any ground on the version in question. They don't, you know, they don't follow the judgment. They don't respect the judgment. If the pictures are are crappy, they they go, well, we don't agree with version. And so we're just going to argue that it doesn't apply, which I think is a very bad exercise of ground discretion. Well, think about what we deal with with the superintendent of motor vehicles. There's decisions from BC Supreme Court that they just don't, they just don't accept or acknowledge. Yeah, but they're an administrative tribunal. Which they're a tribunal, and this is a. I guess these are are prosecutors, prosecutors. but uh, but the 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 trend is clear that uh, sometimes people in government just will ignore a decision from a court or tribunal. Yes. So they've also taken to doing silly things like writing their own arguments that they then provide in every case as to why Vershinen should not be followed. Um, and this argument, as I recently discovered, was written by Crown Counsel, who I guess got, you know, got word of the Vershinen decision. And instead of appealing it like a normal person would do, uh, <laughs> they decided we'll just try and distinguish it in every single case with a stock written argument that we give to our officers. And so finally, the court has had the opportunity to consider this stock written argument that's given to the enforcement officers to see whether um, uh, whether the, the versioning case should be followed. And how do you think it went, Paul? I don't think it went well for them. Um, and uh, you haven't given me the details, but I, I know enough about the details of this other one that's going through uh, that you're dealing with. And I can I can imagine uh, yeah. how it went. So tell us all about it. So this involves uh, Garda World Transport Services. So those armored trucks, um, they, uh, one of their trucks, red light camera ticket. And there was a question raised at the trial about whether the uh, ticket, um, uh, the photos that accompanied the ticket depicted um, a, light, a BC license plate. And the court says at issue in these proceedings is whether the vehicle depicted in the images could be proven beyond a reasonable doubt as one belonging to the disputant. And so just like in every case, they have the certificates and there is uh, photos of the license plate, which uh, show um, <laughs> uh, show the license plate. The maker of the model of the vehicle is not identifiable because it's a commercial vehicle, so it doesn't have those identifiable markings. The vehicle ownership certificate in that case referred to a blue vehicle, but the vehicle appeared to be white. There was writing on the vehicle that said Garda World, um, and the license plate images were fuzzy, and it also wasn't clear whether one of the digits was a 1 or an L. So there were a lot of problems in that case. I'm surprised that they ran it. Right, but they... I mean, that's just bad case makes bad law for them they run everything and this is this is one of the problems that actually the the 
Judicial Justice, uh, Judicial Justice Cedarberg, um, identified. Uh, she was dealing with a self-represented individual um, who, uh, she said, don't make any submissions, don't carry out any cross-examination. Um, and uh, she also didn't want him to testify because she felt that the Crown had essentially not proven its case on the face of it. So she, because she was had the duty to assist the self-represented accused, essentially was telling him no, a no-evidence motion is appropriate here. So, at paragraph 9 of the judgment, the court says this. In red-light camera cases, the Crown is afforded an extraordinary means of proving their case. In these circumstances, disputants have no opportunity to explore options otherwise presented when roadside violation tickets are issued. There is no chance to enter into discussions with police officers who may be encouraged to exercise discretion at the time of the alleged offense. No explanation can be provided by the driver in a timely manner when the event is fresh and recollection is clear. The ability to recall and recreate events which might assist a disputant in formulating a plausible defense is affected by the timing of the event and the later issuance of the ticket. There is no immediate notification. Gee. I find that interesting. Where have you heard that before? On this podcast, out of your mouth. Yes. It's something that's bothered me for a long time. Actually, long before I was a lawyer. Um, when they started uh, rolling out photo radar in the 90s, I was thinking to myself, you know, like the unfairness of this. I never got a photo radar ticket, but the unfairness of this, getting this thing mailed to you after the fact, um, when you don't know whether or not, you know, did you lend your car that day? Were you even there that day? You know, the, the not having the opportunity to take notes about it, like you do when a police officer pulls you over or, you know, explain to the officer why you think they're wrong if you really want to, although that's ill-advised. Um, but all of those things that come with the contemporaneous notification of the offense normally in something that we're, you know, all drivers, most drivers are doing every day, driving their car, um, strikes me as, um, as, a, a unfairness that has to be spoken to. And now it is. Thank goodness. Glad to hear it. The court also says in paragraph 10, I am mindful that allegations associated with a relaxed evidentiary burden are to be strictly interpreted in favor of the accused. And then the court talks about how the fact that the evidence you get is a certificate and the certificate is authored maybe by the officer who's there, but maybe not. Could be any officer who comes to court and prosecutes it. And so you're denied your right even to sort of respond to the allegations of the circumstances because you can't even cross-examine the person who issued the certificate. Although I will say I was successful in making an application for the author of the certificate to be brought, brought to court for cross-examination. But I think there's a difference between when counsel brings that application and says, look, like I'm, I, I've got a serious challenge I'm bringing here. And when a self-represented person who doesn't really know what they're doing does it. Yeah, well, I've told you about my concern about it before, which is that um, certificates are used in in various different types of prosecution, uh, and they are usually to deal with something that is is not controversial. That's the idea, anyway. I mean, it, you know, it, when we see it in breath test cases, I can tell you, you and I can always find a problem to cross-examine that technician. 
But the idea of the certificates there is that the document itself answers any reasonable question that could flow from it on the face of the document. And he, and it's never used, in the closest uh, you know analogy is the impaired driving context, but it's never used as the fundamental thing. It's not the entirety of the evidence, the entirety of the case. And in these things, it's the entirety of the case is yep. in the certificate. That's exactly. And to me, it's, you know, I think it's inappropriate, but government writes the law, right? Yeah, well, that's exactly what the judge says at paragraph 16, or just, justice says at paragraph 16. She says, I find that the entire prosecution flows from the images. The enforcement officer relies on them in order to certify the plate was issued in British Columbia. The photos are integral to the Crown's case and the disputant, along with the court, has the right to point out and consider discrepancies on all the evidence, which includes the photos. Given the trier of fact is entitled to take an independent view of photographic evidence, I find the photos alone raise a reasonable doubt as to the testator's ability to make the claims contained in the certificate. In turn, the evidence provided through the vehicle owner certificate is then called into question. To address Crown's submission regarding the totality of the evidence taken together or on their own, all are deficient in my view. And then she responds to what the, what the Crown has basically made is their argument about Vershinen, which is that Vershinen was, was grounded entirely in speculation. It was completely speculative for the judicial justice to look at the evidence in that case and conclude that there would be a plate associated to the same make and model and color of the vehicle and year that was from another jurisdiction with the same numbers. That that's a remote possibility grounded in nothing more than speculative conclusions. The court says, yeah, maybe, maybe that is speculative, but guess what? It's equally, if not more speculative, to assume the images in question reflect a BC license plate. And of course, you don't get to go run a registration and then work backwards from that. The photo triggers the running the registration. Right? The that's great. That's great. It's that's like completely logical. Yeah. <laughs> so uh that's a really good decision. It's a it's an excellent decision. Well and, uh, and the court says it seems to me that the ability to meet the burden of proof imposed on Crown in these matters is easily accomplished through the provision of clear images. Like it's like this is simple for you to solve. Get clearer pictures. It's fascinating to me that we're seeing this great development in the law on photo radar. When photo radar was brought back by the NDP after the BC Liberals got rid of it, um, I think they just thought that it would be easy peasy, lemon squeezy, get the money from people. Um, because that's what it was before. People weren't challenging them. And now people are challenging them and we're seeing a development in the law. And that's great because, you know, the the courts are looking at it. And, and you know, we have a um, a professional traffic court now, right? Uh, all former lawyers. It wasn't always the case, has been for most of my career, but it wasn't in the in the uh, 90s. Uh, and you can see the quality of the reasoning. You know, the people who are, are sitting on the uh, traffic court bench these days, um, especially some of the, the new people who have just recently come up, they could have just as easily been appointed to BC Supreme Court. Uh -huh. So um, that's why we're, we're seeing this sort of quality of uh, decisions, I guess. Yep. And I'm very happy with it. Um, so, yeah, that's the big update on version. And now you, Paul, have an update for the listeners on a situation involving Tesla. 
Yeah, so uh, Tesla's autopilot has been a concern for the longest time. Um, we've seen cases where, you know, people are asleep at the wheel, reading a book at the wheel. Uh, but then we've also seen a lot of accidents and, you know, it might be a great safety feature. And I can just imagine if you've got a parent who's a senior that you, you know, you'd be thinking about getting them a Tesla. So it might save them by, you know, correcting, but Tesla's autopilot has been advertised by Tesla, a reason to buy the car. Right. Um, and, uh, and something that Tesla has control over, uh, you know, if from the updates in the vehicle and from the regular contact that a Tesla has back with Tesla every day, uh, and Teslas have had autopilots. Well, now they're being forced to recall their vehicles to disable the autopilot. Uh, and they're doing that because it's killed a lot of people, which to me is, um, you know, something that tells me that it wasn't properly developed that they should have known that it wasn't properly developed. They rolled it out when it was still not there. They did that to try and sell more cars, right? They, you know, advertised that it had some, some feature, uh, and people made their contracts on the basis of that feature. Now we're seeing something like 200,000 Teslas in Canada are going to have their autopilot disabled and that's, that's going to happen. What's that? So they should. Well, yeah, so they should, but let's think about all of the implications of that. Um, yes, they should have them disabled, but what happens if you bought a Tesla on that basis that you wanted the autopilot? Like imagine, you know, you, you buy a vehicle because it's got traction control and it's a safety feature. And the recall is that they just take away your traction control. It's like they don't come up with something better. They just take it away from you, uh, because they've got a problem with it. Uh, you know, shouldn't you be entitled to some compensation? Just like when Volkswagen and BMW and Mercedes, but started with Volkswagen, uh, created their, um, their diesels that would, uh, uh, where they lied about the emissions that were coming from it and set them up. So if they were being tested, they would have very few emissions, but when they were actually out on the road, you know, it would be blowing, blowing much more toxic exhaust. Uh, you know, they had to cheat, right? Uh, all of those people who bought those Volkswagen diesels and ended up having to take them in and having them modified in order to meet the emission standards had a, 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 a chance for compensation. I mean, class action lawsuits were filed. I don't know what flowed from that, but think about, um, about a year and a half ago, two years ago, you and I were joking because Elon Musk was tweeting, this was before he bought Twitter, but was tweeting that Tesla needs lawyers and lawyers should be applying. And it was kind of like a, one of these things where he was, the suggestion that I got from that was that he hates lawyers. Um, but nevertheless, he wants to hire some lawyers who are going to tell him what he wants to hear. Um, and, uh, realize that litigation is a significant thing. Well, one of the benefits that Tesla has had over the last years is that they are not, have not been mired in litigation. GM is mired in litigation. For small things, right? For, uh, you know, an ignition that the ignition doesn't work quite properly, the placement of, of this or that, they are mired in litigation at all times. Multiple accidents, somebody dies in one certain model of car, the frames rust out of these Equinox or whatever. Um, and all major automotive manufacturers are, and they have to spend a, a pile of their profits that would otherwise be spent on um, ivory back scratchers and more research. Uh, on litigation. 
And now Tesla is facing a litigation nightmare because all of those people who bought those Teslas on the basis of this feature are in a position to sue Tesla. Well, dang, maybe I should have applied to be Tesla's lawyer after all. Couldn't have. Oh, we, we joked about it, but you couldn't stand working for Musk, I'm sure. Um, and as we know, but um, I have so, a time working with you. <laughs> I'm no, I'm not similar to him in any way. Exactly. What's the point? I wouldn't be able to deal with somebody like him. I can, I do what I want. <laughs> yeah, well, that's true. Yeah. Um, I'm not even your coach anymore. Uh, so anyway, it'll be fascinating to see where that one goes because, uh, I, I would imagine like we're seeing class action lawsuits now for all sorts of things. And there's all these law firms in BC that lost their whole ICBC gig have launched their class action departments now. Uh, and class action lawsuits are a great way to generate money for law firms and they know it. And there are so many things that you could sue for. And I, you know, see it every day, things that you could sue for. And you worry about it if you're a business owner. Are you doing everything absolutely fairly and correctly every day to ensure that you're not, you know, the, the, I don't know if you saw the subway sub um, uh, lawsuit where footlongs were 11 and a half inches and somebody was suing. Yeah. Uh, you know. The, Look, that's that's half an inch of food that you paid for that you did not get. Yes, I think it's in a name and I think it's de minimis, but in any event, you know, this is the type of thing that we're seeing, but this is a, a really solid, legitimate claim from my view against Tesla, a, those people who, you know, had the accidents as a result of it, relying on it. Um, I'm sure they, you know, are updating their terms of service all the time. You get in your car and you've got to update your terms of service probably to start your, move your Tesla. Um, but, uh. But, you, you know, you you purchased it on the basis of the fact that it had this very important feature. That very important feature to you was probably worth 20 grand, maybe more. Um, so should all of those people who purchased Teslas with this feature get monetary compensation for it? What happens if, if you don't settle with Tesla? Do they just turn off your car? Uh, you know, there, there's a, there's room to be suing Tesla and if you're a junior lawyer or you're just in law school and you're thinking to yourself, what's my future hold? You could, uh, you could easily turn yourself to, uh, becoming the, the future Tesla lawsuit lawyer. Okay. Well, I think that that's just great for somebody who can stand Elon Musk enough to work with him. So much to talk about this week. We'll see whether or not we have anything to talk about next week. What's our next thing? Well, our next thing, Paul, is the Ridiculous Driver of the Week. The, week, the, week, the, week, the, week. the reviews are in. This book has been a lifesaver. If you haven't bought a copy yet, I can't recommend it enough. Thanks to the pinpoint method, I feel like I now have concrete strategies I can employ for difficult situations. Published by LexisNexis, Cross-Examination the Pinpoint Method is an essential addition to your bookshelf. Order now. Let's hear it. All right. So this is a Florida man um, who was taken into custody after driving a stolen ambulance, uh, which, you know, doesn't make that much 
absurdity on its own, but he drove it to the sheriff's office. You have to think he wanted to make a point of some sort. Where did this take place? Uh, Florida. Oh, okay. Um, So Florida man steals ambulance, drives it to the sheriff's office. Yeah. Um, I don't know, to turn himself in. Well, maybe he had a, you know, change of heart. Well, I I think the the sheriff's deputy said essentially that this guy was um, maybe took some drugs, but was definitely experiencing an altered mental state at the time. And while he was in his altered mental state, uh, he gets in the ambulance. He drives away from the scene of paramedics who are assisting him because of his altered mental state. And then uh, there's a chase and uh, there's a great photo online of this ambulance hitting a curb and this like spray of sparks behind it. It's fantastic. Awesome. So he was the patient. Yeah. And he's so he's the patient steals the ambulance and drives it to the sheriff's office. Yeah. And he drives the sheriff's office across the front lawn, stops near the main entrance, and then uh, is arrested. Well, I mean, probably he thought he was being abducted by aliens. Who knows? Um, You know, one wonders what was going on through his mind. Again, humans are frail. Right. And the cops, the commented the news story is like, it's not every day that a pursuit ends at our front door. (laughs) Problem solved. Well, I mean... Bonus credit for uh, for solving his own case, um, and uh, hopefully he gets the help that he needs. And uh, I like to think on the basis of those facts that he's uh, he's not going to end up charged. Yeah, I hope not. I hope that you know whatever. Well, if he was on drugs, he and it's Florida, he's going to end. He'll up. be charged. Yeah. Yeah, but if he was having a mental health episode, one can one can hope uh, that uh, the Florida police will exercise a little uh restraint and you know deal. how many times how many times has it almost happened to you or me you know I, you know the number of times that i've almost stolen an ambulance gone on a chase and driven to a sheriff's office is so high that i understand that this person is pretty much just like me Actually, I was thinking about that this morning. I heard on the radio, uh, I'm going to add another ridiculous driver of the week of somebody who was in the in an Uber. They were so pissed off with the slow driving of the Uber driver, they stole the Uber and drove it to the airport. Um, I, that is an awesome one. But That, that is I, fun that almost happened to me, for sure. Well, that's what I was thinking as I heard it. I thought, oh, it's been a few times, not in Canada so much. I mean, I've had Uber drivers who didn't seem to know the rules of the road, but in the States, I've been in a few Ubers where the driver was driving so slowly and I know how to get to the airport. And all I was thinking is, can't you just let me drive? Yep. Move over. I got it. I got it. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, thanks, Kyla. Yeah, that's our podcast. If you have a driving law related issue, you can find us online at VancouverCriminalLaw.com or give us a call at 604-685-8889 and tune in next week for another exciting episode of Driving Law.